You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Crossing Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. I'll be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before the time began, in his own time he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith, and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Our gracious God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your words written for us about your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, what does a healthy church look like? Uh, maybe you think that a healthy church looks like a, a big, impressive church, uh, bustling with programs and people. Uh, maybe you think a healthy church uh, looks like a church that has no conflict or no sin. Or maybe you're like me, and the two words you use to describe a healthy church are not embarrassing. But is that really a healthy church? What does a healthy church look like? Uh, that's the question we're seeking to answer as we explore Titus. Uh, what does it look like for us, Crossing Crown, 
to be truly healthy. In this letter, Paul writes to Titus about the churches he planted in Crete. And the church in Crete is like a kid who's growing up. And like any kid growing up, they begin to act out. They begin to develop unhealthy habits. There's a stage where they begin to lie, talk back at you, and cry every single time they don't get something they want. You see, the church in Crete isn't in her healthiest state. Their entire household's being ruined by false teaching. There's division over worthless debates. And some people have fallen back into their old ways of living before they came to faith in Christ. Paul leaves Titus in Crete in order to restore order, to complete what he started, and verse 5, to set right what was left undone. It's almost like he gets Titus to finish, to finish his parenting job. In this letter, he prescribes the necessary fixes to establish a healthy pattern of gospel ministry. He shows Titus a vision of a healthy church. But in order to see this vision of a healthy church clearly, we need to start at Paul's introduction to his letter. We understand his identity, his purpose, and his motivation will have the key that unlocks the rest of the letter. Follow along with your Bibles because Paul gets straight down into business. He immediately sets his goal for Titus. Godliness is the goal. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul is sent on mission by Jesus for the salvation and sanctification of God's people. And the means of that mission is the knowledge of the truth. Not just any sort of truth, but the truth of the gospel, the truth that leads to godliness. Godliness is living out the gospel in our lives. Many of us will know what the gospel sounds like, but if you want to know what it looks like, it looks like godliness. It's taking the knowledge of God and letting it affect every part of our lives. And if godliness is the goal of the gospel, then Paul warns us against the inverse risk, embracing the gospel without any evidence of godliness, and saying that we know God, but yet deny him in our actions. It's like me telling my wife, Naomi, I love her, but my actions don't show it. Isn't this the risk for many of us? Idolizing theology without letting it shape our lives. It's my risk as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. Cheap grace is a grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Paul's purpose is clear. Godliness is the goal. But what motivates his purpose? 
Uh, what's the engine that drives Paul towards the goal of godliness? Verse 2 is the hope of eternal life. Uh, eternal life is the culmination of our godliness. So we live in the hope that one day we'll be what we're not today. Genuinely and perfectly godly. Uh, that's why hope is the engine of godliness. Uh, different people have uh, different hopes. Uh, I hope the interest rates goes down. Uh, I hope to find the right person. Or I hope this new job will give me fulfillment. There's so many things that we can all hope for, but all our hopes are uncertain because there's no one who can guarantee its fulfillment. Not the RBA governor, not any boyfriend or girlfriend, and not any employer. Paul's home ministry, his whole life is based on the Christian hope. And if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, I want you to know that the Christian hope is not like any other kind of hope. It is the only hope that any of us can have full assurance of. Because verse 2, it's the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Paul gives us two reasons why God's promise of eternal life, true godliness, is rock solid. And number one, God's promises are not like ours because God cannot lie. Uh, that's totally unlike us. We cannot not lie. And we cannot stop ourselves from lying. Uh, but God cannot even make himself lie. That's how reliable he is. And number two, uh, God made the promise of eternal life before time began. It's always been part of his eternal plan that we'll one day enjoy eternal life that we'll all be one day truly godly. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, God longs to see you be part of his eternal plan. He longs to see you enjoy eternity with him and with us. And we know it's part of his plan because he revealed his word in the preaching entrusted to us. In other words, Paul demonstrates the certainty of his promise in his son, Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus guarantees that we too will rise from death to life eternal. And God continues to give us that assurance through the preaching that was entrusted to Paul and that he now entrusts to us, the church. Uh, you see, in God's plan, the church is the means and the goal of God's mission in this world. We're both the recipient and the channel through whom the hope of eternal life is offered to the rest of the world. If godliness is the goal and hope is the engine of our godliness, then hope is the message we must preach to ourselves and to the world. If we get this, we'll get the rest of Titus. Uh, but my guess is we aren't very interested in godliness, are we? Our focus is on this life and not the next. Uh, we live from holiday to holiday and experience to experience. Uh, we strive for the next promotion or the next big thing. But how often do we strive for godliness, the only treasure of eternal value? 
And I wonder if that's the same for us as a church. Are we more excited with knowing the Bible, but less keen on living the Bible? Do we get more excited when we see the new sermon artwork, or when we see godliness worked out amongst each other? The Bible tells us endlessly to be holy, to be godly, and to be righteous. It tells us to be excited for the eternal life to come. Just imagine. Imagine if we were a church that lives for godliness every day. Imagine if we were a church that lives in the hope of eternal life. Imagine if we were a church that lives out this hope to the rest of the world. Paul makes it pretty clear. Godliness is the goal because eternal life awaits us. And if godliness is the goal, Paul shows us that we need models of godliness. Who do you model your life after? Who are the people you look to for advice? Uh, I suspect we all have a handful of people that we look up to. Uh, for many of us, uh, it was our parents, uh, and we went to them because they modeled to us how to live. Uh, but as we get older, we also look to other people. Uh, we tend to look for people who've done well uh, in a worldly sense. Uh, the person who has a nice house, uh, a respectable job, and a balanced lifestyle. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with modeling our lives after someone who's done well in life. In fact, there's probably much to learn from them. But if godliness is our goal, wouldn't we want models of godliness? Not models of the world, but models of God. Not those who are successful in the eyes of the world, but successful in the eyes of God. If someone was successful in the eyes of a God, but not the world, would you look up to them? The first thing Paul asks of Titus in this letter is to appoint elders in every town. Uh, these are the godly men Paul wants the church in Crete to model themselves after. And we know godliness is the goal because Paul gives Titus a list of qualifications for these men. Uh, in verses 6 to 9, uh, he lists a whole series of virtues and vices. Uh, but I want us to notice the one ring that rules them all is listed twice in verses 6 and 7. An elder must be blameless. Uh, to be blameless doesn't mean an elder must be uh, without enemies. Uh, just because someone doesn't like them or him doesn't disqualify him. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes about people who opposed him. And Jesus himself faced many oppositions throughout his whole ministry. Unless we want to exclude a Paul and Jesus from being elders of Cross and Crown, uh, being blameless doesn't mean everyone needs to like him. In fact, it probably means that some people won't. To be blameless also means to be above reproach. Uh, it's like being a commissioned army officer. Uh, they're honorable in the eyes of the public. Uh, there's someone who's above and beyond with their actions. Uh, there's someone who you know conducts himself according to a set of code or values. In verses 6 to 9, Paul shows us 
what it looks like for an elder. Being blameless accounts for all aspects of life. And Paul shows what that looks like in two areas of life. Uh, The first area is the elder's own household. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Uh, That is, he must be able to lead his own life, and if he has a family, he must be able to lead them too. Uh, The second area is the household of God. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Uh, Being able to lead his own household is like uh, the first round of interviews. Uh, If he doesn't pass that, he's automatically disqualified. But being able to lead his own household doesn't itself qualify him for the job either. He must be able to lead God's household. In other words, he must be a model of godliness. If godliness is the goal, elders are the yardstick of godliness. Uh, The list of virtues and vices in verses 6 to 9 shouldn't just be true of the elders. It should be true for us. Uh, As we look to Adam, Jeremy, Josh, and Paul, the examples of godliness that all of us should strive towards. And they're not perfect, far from it. Believe me, I know. Josh is my brother. Adam is my brother from another mother. Uh, Jeremy and Paul are friends and other men who really care for me. Uh, They're not perfect, but they're positive pictures of what it means to pursue godliness. And verse 9 shows us why having godly elders is important to the health of a church. And number one, they encourage us with sound teaching. The word for sound in Greek is hujiaino, which also means um, hygiene or health, which means our elders promote the health of our church by giving us healthy teaching. And number two, they refute those who contradict the gospel. Our elders are like our spiritual parents. They're the people we look to that model to us how to live healthy lives. But they also feed us with the healthy things we need to grow, and stop us from eating the unhealthy things that makes us sick. The church in Crete uh, isn't a healthy church. In fact, it's pretty unwell. Uh, Look with me at verses 10 to 11. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't, in order to get money dishonestly. Uh, The circumcision party are teaching a false gospel. They're saying that if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. But what makes them so rebellious is not just their heresy, though bad that may be, 
Verse 11 says, it's their greed. False teachers can be detected by their false motives. Uh, Just as the true gospel affects the whole of life, heresy left unchecked penetrates deep into the church. It's like an infection that spreads through the whole body, and you can't get it out of the system. In verses 12 to 13, Paul quotes a pagan Cretan, Epimenides. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul saying to the church, you're just like the rest of Crete, lying, evil, and lazy. It's as if Paul quotes a pagan Melburnian who says, Melburnians are always comfort-seeking, self-centered, social progressives, and crossing crown, that's exactly what you're like. You're just like the world around you. Uh, That's why he instructs Titus to silence these false teachings and rebuke those in the church who are giving into them. And notice that it's not a soft rebuke, but a sharp rebuke. We don't like to be called out for sin, do we? And often when we're called out, we lash out. But there's a time and place for the sharp rebuke. In order to change the creed in church, Titus must confront them and be firm. Although this rebuke might be sharp, it's neither careless nor vindictive. Because the aim of every rebuke is to heal. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply so that they might be healthy in faith. It's not an easy thing for our leaders and our elders to call us out for sin, especially when we tend to lash back at them. But believe it or not, they're doing it out of love for you. They're doing it so that we might be healthy in faith. Now you might be wondering, verse 15 looks a bit out of place. What's going on here? Paul's coming back for a final push against these false teachers. These teachers were preoccupied with being clean on the outside. And so Paul says there's two types of people, uh, the pure, those who have been cleansed by Christ on the inside, and the defiled, the teachers whose unbelief or obsession with outward purity grew out of their unbelief. Uh, Instead of trusting God's grace, they trust in man-made commands. The reality is this so-called truth they embrace does not lead to godliness. It doesn't purify them or make them holy. Rather, it makes them detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Every belief expresses itself in action. The gospel in godliness and everything else in godlessness. Friends, we are in our fifth year as a church. We've seen church grow from about a team of 24 to about 200 people now. And we've seen people come and put their faith in Jesus. We've seen people grow in their godliness and maturity. And there's something good and healthy about that which we need to be thankful and to praise God for. And from what I can see, I don't think we're always liars, evil beasts, or lazy gluttons, just sometimes. But 
that doesn't mean we have no unhealth in our church. I suspect comfort and apathy are but a few of the things we struggle with. The biggest telltale sign for our comfort and apathy is the fact that we don't turn up to church every week. Or we don't turn up on time to church every week. We just don't care enough. And that's only in the surface. Sin always lies deeper. And we don't live out the gospel on Sunday. I suspect we won't live it out uh, any other day. Paul instructs Titus, or yeah, Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders to promote the health of the church, to silence those who embody godlessness, but to also encourage us towards godliness. In many ways, our elders are appointed to do the same thing. Their role as elders is to lead our church in direction, to direct us towards godliness, doctrine, to hold on to sound teaching, and discipline, to encourage us with healthy teaching, and to protect us from unhealthy teaching. So will we look up to them as our models of godliness? Will we make godliness our goal both individually and corporately as a church? And most importantly, will we let the truth of the gospel and the hope of eternal life not only shape our heads, but our hearts and our hands? Uh, Let's pray. Gracious God, you cannot lie, and you promised us eternal life through your Son, Jesus. Help us live in light of that truth and let that shape every part of our lives. We praise you and are thankful for our elders who live out the gospel for us. May we continue to be models of godliness, or may they continue to be models of godliness to us. And may we follow and imitate them as they imitate Christ. Help us be a healthy and godly church. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.